and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and I am joined by Matthew Bianco, an old friend, and a new friend, Sarah Jane Bentley. If you have been listening to The Plays of Thing, you have already met Sarah Jane. She's been on there in the last couple shows, talking about Othello and Macbeth. But this is her debut appearance on Close Reads, and she and Matt are here to discuss Louis Auchincloss's novel, The Rector of Justin. But first, let's uh, let's welcome Sarah Jane and Matt to the show. Welcome back. Thanks, David. We're here representing the uh, European perspective on this novel. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, That's Matt, right. You're, you're in Germany. You just got off the Autobahn. How fast were you driving? I hit, at one point, I hit 165 kilometers, 170. How many? What is that in miles? Does anybody know? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> It would be 100 and 105 miles per hour. Okay. It's a higher car though, right? So you can do whatever you like in a higher car. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, so yeah, Matt is in Germany right now and Sarah Jane is in... Well, where are you? Are you, in, are you just in... Where is Eaton again? <laughs> yeah, I'm at home in Eaton next to the Thames. I've just been weeding the garden. It's quite a sunny autumn day over here. You've been weeding the garden outside yeah. next to the Thames. That might be the most English literature <laughs> thing I've ever heard before. Um, unless it's like you were wandering the dark streets of, you know, a smog-ridden 18th <laughs> century London. Um, like the first page of Bleak House or something. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so for those of... So, so a lot of listeners who listen to this show may not listen to... Um, the place of thing. Sarah Jane, can you just tell everyone a little bit about yourself? You have, say, say 30 seconds to introduce who you are. I'm a school teacher from England. I, um, I've been teaching for about 10 years. I teach at a private boys boarding school uh, near Windsor Castle, and um, I teach literature. That's about it from me. Well, I don't know what you might want to know. <laughs> so it, you know, there's a lot of obvious reasons I feel like why I, w- I thought it would be great to have you make your debut appearance here on Close Reads, given that this is a book about an all boys school. Now, obviously, it's not an all boys school in England, but nonetheless, I feel like there's there has to be some uh, some common ground or some common experiences between what you have seen and what you're reading about in this book. Um, before I ask you a question about that, though, Matt, this is your second time reading the Rector of Justin, right? Is that is that correct? Second time, yes. Okay. So what was your first experience like? Was this a book where you knew right away that you that you loved it or did it did it take to the end or are you just kind of loving it now for well actually I shouldn't say that you I know that you're loving it. So I'll leave it at that. What was your experience like the first time? I actually don't remember what my general impression was as I went through it. Like I don't remember if I loved it right away or if it took a while. Um, if I had to, you know, work at it until I got to that spot where I loved, loved it, I don't remember. But I just remember that there are these flashes of memories from the story that stick and have stuck with me, like things that the that the narrator learns from, you know, from the rector Prescott that, like that that have stuck with me as things that I've learned, I guess, from it. So I, I remember those kinds of things, but I don't. Which makes me like the book, which makes me have a fond memory of the book. But I don't remember when I started liking it or not. I think it must have been right from the beginning, but I don't know. Hmm. Well, so okay, Sarah Jane, I want to. I want to know: does this does this hit too close to home as you're reading it? <laughs> I'm reading it in the holidays. <laughs> <laughs> oh, perfect. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely keeping me connected to what school life is like. But it's um, 
it's reminding me actually of some of the huge, um, beautiful public schools I've, or they call private schools that I've visited in America, St. Paul's in Concord, New Hampshire, Phillips, Exeter and Phillips, Andover. That's the kind of vibe I'm getting from this. Hmm. So is it, I mean, is it quite a bit different than, than what you experience on a day-to-day basis at Eton? So I've only read the first bit of the novel, so I'm not sure. Sure. I, I haven't got an impression yet of what the kind of lessons are like in the school or anything, but yeah, right, there are right. definitely some similarities. There's, they're in dormitories, aren't they, the boys in this book, which is different to here. Here, all the boys have their own bedroom. Mm. I'm sure there have been legendary figures like Prescott who have walked around Eton in a cape carrying a cane. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Do the headmasters not wear capes and carry canes anymore? I feel like that should be a prerequisite. So all all the teachers wear capes well, at 11.20 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> that That's just a standard daily thing. Is that not what happened at school with you? <laughs> at home? <laughs> at home, yes. When I was being homeschooled for those few years, there were a lot of capes, I will say. Well, let's let's dive into this book a little bit um, because there there are a few things that at least Sarah, Sarah Jane and I have been discussing offline, um, kind of going back and forth about. One of them is a lot of the sort of what intertextual, the, the literary references to writers like Henry James. <clears throat> and I feel like we should talk a little bit about that. Um, and, and we'll do so in a minute. Um, but I wanted to, to to ask kind of a broad, annoying question in some ways. But I was thinking a lot about the first the sort of structure of this book and how our narrator and then Auchincloss through the narrator is setting up the narrative that we have, we have going on here. And Matt, I was wondering if you could tell, could give me a summary of what you think is sort of the central, um, I was going to say conflict. I mean, just because that's sort of the, the, the sort of <laughs> rote literary term, I guess. But I mean, what do you, what do you think this is book is about? Um, because it's you know it's 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 using this sort of form of of letters and then the memoir and it's kind of goes back and forth in time and and it, a lot of it is about the inner life of this person Brian Brian Aspinall who's writing the letters and we have this legendary figure of of um, Prescott <clears throat> but but what would you say is this book is actually about as we're kind of going through all those different elements that Locke and Class is giving us at least as at least through the first five chapters. I was going to say, based on the first five chapters. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, can I cheat and say what David Hicks says it's about in terms of nobility? Well, sure. You can always rely on a on a good good source <laughs> on a good authority. Because yeah. I think he, I think he's, I think you can see some of that of his what he says being correct in the first five chapters. He says that um, you know that the book is about whether it's possible to do uh, education that the kind of education that we're talking about is classical education, but you know, education that cultivates wisdom and virtue that teaches, that teaches somebody what the, what the right is and then to act on that. And that the book is about whether it's possible. And it examines that, you know, from, by looking at the way Dr. Prescott tried to do it and then perhaps the way others, you know, helped along the way or, or, or contributed along the way. And then whether it was possible based on the actual results of St. Justin Martyr, the school. And I think you get, I think you get some of that. I mean, I think you see that in the first five chapters of, um, you know, the stories that, that 
that Aspinall tells us about students, the way students interact with Dr. Prescott when they come back or when they write him letters. There are some of them telling him how wonderful he is in a almost kind of hagiography kind of way. And uh, and then others telling him how awful he is <laughs> in a, in a, you know, I, I hate my life because of you. Yeah. I never felt like a man until I ripped up the prayer book you gave me. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. So then you see this kind of, you see that it, it's led to two very different kinds of students coming out of, or what appears to be two very different kinds of students as graduates. And you see that right here in the beginning. And then you see the way, you know, Aspinall is going about his business of being, being a teacher at this school and, and recognizing his own deficiencies and weaknesses. And then how Dr. Prescott is even still teaching him, cultivating mm-hmm. wisdom and virtue in him, you know, trying to teach him how to be a man or how to be a teacher, how to be a leader or how to be a minister as the case may be. Mm-hmm. Sarah Jane, obviously you can jump in whenever you want. <laughs> um, but I wanted to, um, do you, do you see what he's saying as sort of a, uh, sort of a central conflict or more of a central theme? Yes, I agree with Matt. It is, I think it must be a book about how, how education should work. It was interesting. There was one moment where I think it is maybe Horace talking about um, Prescott. And he says that Greek and Latin don't really matter to him. It's more about cultivating the spark of interest. Actually, mm. maybe it's Prescott himself who says it to um, Brian Aspinall in the first bit, that, it, that education is about cultivating a spark of interest in, in a young man. Mm. And uh, he obviously likes football as well. <laughs> Football's <laughs> clearly very important. Um, which I think means that if you have a virtue, you need to be able to practice it too. And that maybe the sports field is a place where these virtues are played out. I don't know. Hmm. I was thinking a lot about how there are these repeatedly these discussions about the value or lack thereof of some sort of physical confrontation. So you have the sort hmm. of repeated questions of football and Aspinall not valuing that at all and kind of getting reprimanded by everybody around him for not caring enough, um, which kind of mirrors Horace actually um, when Horace was young. But then also there's the snowball fights, right? And the discussion about um, what is it? Was it hazing or something like that? And there's... Yeah. What does um, that mean? Is that an American term for bullying? Uh, would you say... I, I, wouldn't, I, think that's a, I don't know that I would say it's bullying exactly. It's bullying with a purpose. <laughs> Okay. Uh, no, it's more like it's, when somebody's it's new. Of a, it's kind of a yeah. It's like a rite of passage kind of a thing. But you you you're tough on them to to, to test them to make sure they're going to be tough enough to to join whatever it is you're doing, your school, your club, your whatever. Right, and to reaffirm a hierarchy, perhaps as well. Yes. Oh yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. I mean, around here, you'd most commonly hear it. Uh, and certainly negative, well, probably negatively in um, like fraternities and sororities and things like that. Okay. Yeah. Probably because it has become bullying. Right. Yeah. I think, I, I don't know that that was... Over time. Yeah. The intention ex- exactly. Uh, at Maybe first. we've just become a bit more sensitive. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Also, <laughs> I, I think there's also a question of, uh, we're probably not great with moderation. <laughs> mm. um, yeah. So you you asked about the structure of the book mm-hmm. um, and what the book is about. I wonder if it's also about how can you 
how does the writer tell a story about a character mm-hmm. from the exterior? And so there are lots of references in the first five chapters to other epistolary novels. Yeah. I wonder if, um, I can't even say his name. I was calling him Auschenkloss, but what what is the name of the author again? Aukin. I, I, I always heard Auchincloss, but I have... Auchincloss, okay. Yeah. I wondered if he wanted to sort of um, step into that tradition of epistolary novels. So he mentions Clarissa by mm-hmm. Richardson, and he's also, um, Brian is reading The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins to the boys in the dorm at night. And both of those are epistolary novels. So maybe it's mm. something about how do you construct a character from the exterior by a series of different perspectives? Just looking at how, how do we actually know people from the mm. outside? So for people who aren't familiar with that term, can you, can you just give a quick definition of an epistolary novel? It's a novel based on a series of letters. An epistle is a letter. So, so there. Yeah. One of the things I was thinking about that's really fascinating about this novel, and I was wondering if I was going to ask you this, um, do you know of any other such novels, any other uh, epistolary novels that also bring in like memoir or other, you know, like other different sort of variations on that? Isn't Dracula is Dracula is epistles, uh, diary entries, um, newspaper clippings there's all kinds of stuff in there right huh Mm. so maybe this is imitating dracula that would be very interesting uh book to keep in mind as we're reading this actually (laughs) (laughs) yeah the other one that sprang to mind was um as i lay dying by faulkner Mm. just in terms of narrative perspective I, i i'm not sure there are many more kind of comparisons to be made than that but well that is interesting i mean um yeah, that's another one. That's interesting. I'm going to keep those two in mind as we're going. I don't have much to say about that now, but it does. I can sit here and think about it for a while in silence, and you guys could talk. Um, I, I was, but I was fascinated by the the varieties of you know even the challenge by by an author like Auchincloss or Faulkner, whoever, to to present um, like a a consistent voice from each of the different. Mm. perspectives so we've got brian aspinall's diaries and he, and he's got a very specific way that he's presenting brian's voice in his letters it's he's writing for himself brian is but then he also is writing in his own voice and auchincloss has to be able to to capture that voice but then when he switches over to horace's memoirs for example or some of the later perspectives those have to be their own unique voices as well. And I wonder if that's why this is one of those books that is really beloved by writers because it has to capture, it's like writing four different kinds of like four different books It's four different. It's not just writing from the perspective of a character who is having a dialogue with somebody, but you have to get inside the head of multiple characters and then tell a story from their perspective in their own voice with their own way of speech and all that kind of stuff. Those, those kind of elements. So I, I think in that way, it makes it, he, that must have been a very real challenge and something that he was up against. Um, so I was wondering, Sarah Jane, if you or Matt, um, but Sarah Jane, since you you were just talking, um, I think you said this offline that you're teaching Dickens in in, in the Eaton Library with the original, with yeah, the original magazine. Right. I, I was wondering if you were teaching a book like this to to your class, your group of 
high school. What is it? What do you call it there? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's high school. They're teenagers. So, yeah. Yeah. If you're teaching it to teenage boys, say, um, how much time would you spend examining the differences between these different voices? I mean, we can do it on the podcast if we're interested. We could just follow our bliss, so to speak. But when you're teaching it, would you spend time looking at the differences in, in voice and between these different narrators? Yeah, I think that would be time well spent. It's it's part of, I suppose, trying to understand what's what's being said as well, isn't it? By listening to the voice that's speaking to you. And um, it's interesting for me because I haven't read the whole novel yet. So I've only heard a couple of characters so sure. far. Yeah. And um, there, yeah, there are things about tone and structure that are very different between Horace and Brian. What did you... I mean, what are your impressions of Brian through his voice? What do people think about him? Matt, I'll, I'll let you answer that one first. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, I can go, I guess. <laughs> Brian, well, Brian just said he's a very interesting person to me, but in a, I don't know. For, I mean, for me, it's, he's kind of sad. Like, mm. he's really, really passive. And, um, soft maybe is the word i want to use and but what's interesting is that in in that sense he and horace are not that different Mm. except horace is horace has accepted who he is and so he has Mm. he has a confidence in it that 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 brian doesn't have and so brian seems to seems to be fighting it or, or, or trying to anyways, but like that opening line, well, it's not the very opening line, but they're in the early opening lines there. The first paragraph, he says, he says the best way for the passive man to overtake his more (laughs) active brothers is to write them up. (laughs) So it's like, I can't be a better person than somebody like Dr. Prescott, but I can be a better, I can't be a better person myself, but I can be a better person by writing about a better person, which I think yeah. is kind of an interesting way of uh, addressing one's passivity. <laughs> it, calls to, it calls to mind the conversation that Horace and Brian have, I think, in chapter four, where Brian is saying, oh, can I read this, what you wrote about Prescott? And, uh, or I'd like to hear your, your stories or whatever. And, and Horace is like, what are you going to write a book about him? <laughs> Uh, or something like that. <laughs> right. And then, and then uh, he's like, well, I, I don't, maybe I don't remember exactly what he said, but then he, and then it turns out Horace had written this book about him as well. Um, so, so yeah, they, they, they don't, they don't feel like they are as, you know, uh, uh, magnetic or, you know, successful or uh, important or whatever as Prescott, but the way to, the way to approximate that is by, by writing about them. What does it say about writers? No. <laughs> Just in it is, writing must be a, a kind of hero worship, isn't it? I remember reading about Thomas Hardy's wife being um, absolutely distraught and furious with him because she was convinced that he was in love with Tess hmm. and um, yeah. that this was adulterous, that um, the writers themselves kind of get absorbed by the characters and forget about real life. I don't know. It hmm. was. I was wondering as well if... Um, there's a sense that Brian, as Matt said, he's really passive and maybe it's looking for an identity or mm. looking for a role model elsewhere. So another similarity between Brian and Horace is that 
both of them, their parents die relatively young. So Brian is kind of an orphan when he comes to hmm. um, Justin Martyr, although he's, he's 27 years old. And it says that Horace's father, I think, dies when he's 30. Hmm. And then and both of them seem to hero worship Prescott and, um, and obviously want to write about him hmm. as a means of I don't know, discovering something about who they are, perhaps. There's there's um, all the things that Horace says about um, Prescott's vision for this school that he wants to create. And, and Horace kind of says, I didn't have any direction until he made that statement. And then I wanted to follow and get on board with that idea. So hmm. that's right. I, I agree completely with Matt that the two characters are very similar. There's the really interesting line in the first paragraph of the book, right before what Matt is mentioning, um, where he says, I've always wanted to keep a journal, but whenever I'm about to start one, I'm dissuaded by the idea that it is too late. I lose heart when I think of all the fascinating things I could have described had I only begun earlier. And I kept thinking that it almost feels like he's saying, you know, I I lose heart at all the things that I could have done had I only started earlier. And, And in some ways, you know, maybe he's looking at someone like, Prescott or Hor- you know mm. Horace looking at Prescott and, and seeing the things that 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 Prescott can accomplish it, partly be by sheer force of will by his personality by you know by being kind of who he is that he's able to accomplish these things and and Brian's feeling like oh I haven't ever accomplished I haven't done anything yet you know um yes. and, and feeling like what what am i possibly going to do he doesn't even he doesn't you mentioned that matt you mentioned that horace maybe knows who he is a little more and brian's trying to figure out he's trying to understand who he is he's trying to figure out am i going to go to divinity school do i become a minister is am i even meant to teach these boys uh, well, you know what is it that i'm actually supposed to be doing and so this journal in a sense maybe is a, a sort of self discovery as much as it is sort of an ode to prescott but also there's this question of before too long, time's going to have passed me by and I'm going to run out, I'm going to have run out of chances to accomplish anything big like what Prescott did. Sarah, Sarah, you were going to say something. Um, no, I was listening. I think that's true. And maybe the idea is, isn't it, that he's just lived through the death of both his parents and he's been nursing them. Mm. And kind of one of the next things that happens to him is that he, he spends time with Mrs. Prescott, Harriet Prescott, contemplating her life with her. And I think one of the tensions in the novel is between what, yeah, what makes a great life and what makes a great work of art. Because Prescott is a kind of plot-focused type character, it seems. He always wants action to be done. Whereas mm. his wife um, likes to kind Hung of... Hung out with And at one point, I think... Um, Brian says to Harriet, I wanted her to stop talking and just to realise that her life has been a work of art. Mm. Um, Mm. And I I wonder if there's a bit of a kind of interplay between those things, especially in in the way the novel's written as well. I mean, does it have a plot or is it more sort of series of portraits? Yeah, okay. Do you you think that... Go ahead, Matt. Sorry. No, there's that internet lag. Do you... Yeah. Do you, do you think that um, there's a kind of a shift there with Prescott even when, with, with the situation with his wife, because it's almost like, it's almost like his vision for the school has been to create 
him, like recreate mm. his students in his, his image where they are active and plot driven and, you know, movers and shakers and actors, which is, which is interesting because then it makes the students who wrote the letter saying, I never felt like more of a man until I did X, um, actually a six successes if, if perhaps mm. that's his goal, but, mm. but then, so, so then when, but he wants his teachers to be that way too. Right. So when Brian shows up, yeah. it's like, Hey, you have to be involved with football because that's what we do here. That's how I'm going to turn you into me. He doesn't say those words, of course, but um, that's perhaps what he's trying to do. But then he himself does, does he himself have a moment where he's not just, he's not just, winking at the fact that Brian is skipping out on football and spending time reading to his wife, to Prescott's wife, but actually sees that as a good in and of itself and, and not, not a trade-off, but this is a good way of being. Mm -hmm. And that's when he's, Mm -hmm. and that's when he's willing to retire and step down and just be Mm -hmm. rather than do. There's that brilliant moment. Um, at the fireplace, isn't there? Where he, Prescott talks about Tennyson's Ulysses. Yeah. yeah. Who, do, do you know that poem at all? Yeah. Oh, this the one is... that ends to strive to seek to find and not to yield, where Ulysses has been at home with Penelope for a long time. And then he ne- he's sort of restless and wants to go off again because he feels that he's mm-hmm. not making the most of himself. I thought I thought it was interesting that that's, who Prescott <laughs> looks to as he's just about to retire. Um, especially when we learn <laughs> later in the, in the next bit that he'd always hated Tennyson, but kind of <laughs> now in his eighties, he's sort of come around to the idea that there's something about Ulysses that Tennyson had noticed that maybe is true about him. I'm trying to find the page. Yeah. I don't know if either of you have it. It's on 55 in the elite. Well, yeah, yeah. You, you, you have scans of my book. So it's on 55. <clears throat> the top. Um, yeah, that's it. The years have taken me how from Browning you know, to Tennyson. Yeah, how do you know, Horace, that the yeah. work of noble note remains for me to do? He doesn't want to stop. <laughs> One of the interesting things about that poem, I think, is that, you know, I, I know a lot of people who hate that poem. Like our friend Heidi thinks that that's just completely misunderstanding Ulysses or Odysseus or whoever, mm. which is a fair case. I, th- I think there's a, that case is to be made. But it's also mm. a poem about he wants to go not because he doesn't like being home per se because he part of it is that he feels like he has prepared Telemachus. Like it's Telemachus is ready to, to do his job um, that he's ready to take over. I think, I think that that's part of what Ulysses is sort of look realizing anyway, that he's not mm. as useful as he, as he once was. And maybe he's not necessary anymore in terms of he has come back and he has, pres- he has restored the kingdom. You know, we just read the Odyssey, right? So he's just restored the kingdom and he's been there. He's preserved it. And now that preservation has to fall into somebody else's hands. And thus he doesn't, that's why he doesn't feel as useful. And so that's, mm-hmm. if you think about it from that perspective with Prescott, maybe he had, maybe he feels like he has, he has done his job. He has, you know, built this kingdom and he has trained these people. And now it's time to, the preservation now has to belong to somebody else because you can't, you know, you can't preserve something. It's not going to be preserved if you are the last, the only person who has ever, you know, let it, um, you know, it, it, once you die, it, the preservation falls into someone else's hands. Um, mm. and so I think maybe there's something of that going on where he, he didn't like, maybe he doesn't like, um, 
when he was younger, he doesn't like Tennyson. He doesn't like that poem for the same reason, maybe that Heidi doesn't like it, that she, that it doesn't get Odysseus. But then when he's old, he's looking back and he's, he's realizing that, that what Tennyson was doing there with Ulysses character is something that maybe only an old person can, an older person can truly feel in their soul. Um, and so he's feeling something that he wouldn't have been capable of feeling when he was younger. What if, um, what if, because when he was younger, he viewed Justin Martyr as the odyssey, the, the, the journey itself. Mm. But now he views, as opposed to now he views Justin Martyr as the Penelope or as the Ithaca, right? Now it's settled. And now, now he sees that he's like Odysseus or, or Ulysses rather needs to, needs to go on and hand it over to others. Hmm. Mm. But before, the, before Justin Martyr was the thing that he was odysseying through. That's for lack of a better term. Journeying through. I also find there's yeah. quite a lot of irony in the conversations between Haverstock and Prescott that they they never quite mean what they actually say straight up. There's some kind of there's some that's kind just of called friendship. Going on between them. Yeah, I think I actually I think that's written really well in the novel and how Brian is observing it and also isn't sure where to position himself. Yeah, and um, sometimes he even feels like they don't even know that he's there. Yes. And of course, at this point, Brian doesn't know that there's a joke going on here and that Prescott used to hate Tennyson. But it's one of the things that they bonded over when they met, first met in school. <laughs> yeah, there's that right after this, the next couple paragraphs down, there's the bit where they kind of start um, Prescott's got his it says he turns his back to his fire and then his face is drawn down in an expression of bitterness so so Brian sees bitterness anyway that's how he sees it mm. and then he grips the mantle with both of his hands and kicks a log viciously so this Prescott in action again right like his contemplation is very active as you guys were describing and then he said nobody's scared of me sometimes I wish they were and then <laughs> um, Horace says Harriet would have told you the same thing and then Prescott yells at him, oh, go to bed, Horace, and stop croaking. You just want everyone else's world to come apart as yours has. Yeah. And then Havistock doesn't even care. Um, and then he asks him, Brian, to go fetch his valet. But then when he comes back, they're laughing together. And so you almost wonder, like, are they playing? Yeah. He feels like they could have been playing a joke on him. Or it's just that their friendship is such that they can say these things to one another and then be over it in a few minutes. Um, and it shows how Brian is, is on the outside, even though he's the first person narrator he still can't quite mm -hmm. understand the characters which in that way is the sort of perfect mirror for us as the readers as we're trying to understand mm. larger than life character well, i i found I that wonder what happens if you read it sorry my lag no no go on matt okay <laughs> um i wonder if i wonder what happens if you read it with like taking those kinds of statements, like when he says, Oh, shut up and go to bed. You just want the world to fall apart. Like everyone else's world to fall apart, like yours has. And then there seems to be like, like, like Horace would deny that or, or does deny that. Right. It's not, that's not true. Um, but and so they, like they keep making these ribs at each other, these, these accusations at each other. And there seems to be this kind of denial that it, that is true. They both, they're both misobserving the other, but, what, but, but then for us, it does, it's, it's, I don't know, for me, it feels like he's like, they're right. Like what, like what Prescott accuses Horace of, Prescott's actually right, even if, even though Horace denies it. And then what Horace is saying about Prescott, his observations are actually right. 
um, even though Prescott would deny it, and even if even though Brian might not always see it that way for either of them too. So I wonder mm-hmm. if if the irony is like I, it's irony between the characters, but then at a deeper level, it's there's a truthfulness to it as well, you know. Mm. Yeah, I'm that's like, sort of there's some something Shakespearean about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. What were you going to say? So, I don't know. I wonder if there's a sense that Brian, even at this point, is because of his reverence for Prescott, he's maybe a bit envious of the relationship between Haverstock mm-hmm. and Prescott. Mm. Um. I don't know. It's fascinating. All the little bird similes and metaphors were kind of sparking my interest as well. I don't know what you thought of those. Go on. <laughs> um, it seems that Brian always compares people to birds. <laughs> it's, it's either a vulture or a hawk every time. <laughs> and I don't know if that's the, the author having a joke on, on Brian or if, if that's significant in some way i don't know but mrs have oh. mrs prescott is described as a turkey vulture and then pretty much everyone else is described as a hawk huh mr hey, ives he calls mr ives that right mr ives he calls prescott that when prescott comes in is kind of looking over his shoulder when he's reading in the dormitory and he calls um Haverstock a hawk at one point and then a vulture in this bit that we were just looking at. Hmm. I don't know, something to do with birds of prey. I don't know what you, <laughs> what theories you might have about that. That's, a, that's interesting. I never thought about that. So maybe we should just um, sit here silently and think about it for a minute and then see what we can, or we can just talk and see what happens. Old Haverstock is too practiced a vulture. Yeah. So, so, okay. So, who uh, that's what that's what where is that what line where page is that that's um on page 55 as well down towards the bottom okay so have so he's saying that in his journal to himself he's reflecting on have a stock it's not mm-hmm. it's not prescott saying it to maybe it goes back to what what matt was saying about brian being passive that he sees himself as some kind of prey to all these vicious birds i don't know <laughs> well he says to practice a vulture to have come prematurely to the scene of demission um, it's like he, he shows up in the moment of chaos or after someone, something's bad has already happened to someone. He didn't show up in mm-hmm. time for, to be there when Harriet was dying or when she was sick or when even in the immediate aftermath, he comes, you know, he comes later and kind of like when there's, when, when it's just, you know, the, uh, the tragedy, yeah, well, I suppose. Or if he's turned up at the, t- at just the right time to kind of pick at the corpse of, um, Prescott's dead career Mm. it's a bit ominous yeah it it is a little it is there i mean maybe that's maybe that's some foreshadowing there (laughs) and then the very next line i think it's interesting prize day and mr havistock seed have borne bitter fruit Mm. prescott made the announcement of his retirement at the close of the ceremonies and it came as a complete surprise and shock to his audience you wonder what sort of agency then Havistock has like how much power I guess it maybe is another word what kind of power does he have or influence does he have over Prescott in a way that no one else would have had like would anybody else have been able to come and show him or reveal to him or convince him depending on how you look at it that he should retire would would anybody else have that kind of power 
Does I mean Matt might have a sort of superior insight into this, having read the whole novel. But for me, it was really surprising after encountering Haverstock in that conversation to then r- realize the kind of lengths he goes to to make friends with Prescott, and how mm-hmm. at the beginning um, Horace is very much the underdog, and and Frank wants nothing to do with him. So something's happened where there's been this change in their relationship Hmm. yeah so here at the end he's the one that has something of a he has some kind of a sway or upper hand over prescott Mm. whereas early on prescott was just the one who dominated the and determined he dictated the terms of their relationship yeah do you is there anything you can say about this matt without giving things away um so i lost my signal just for a second um so what is germany germany I know, I know, I know. Um, you would think they'd have better engineering over here, whatever. <laughs> hey, I just want to take a quick break to uh, give you a word from our sponsors, our friends over at Gutenberg College. We all know we live in a messy and complex world, yet so often we oversimplify critical issues about humanity, culture, and ultimate reality. Bombarded with sound bites, biased research, and fragmented narratives, we may wonder how we even begin thinking about today's issues and how to live a worthy life in the face of them. But what if there were a way to get clarity about the causes of our problems and the many solutions proposed to them? What if there were a way to understand people, culture, and yourself at a deeper level so that you could live with purpose, integrity, and wisdom? At Gutenberg College, there is. Gutenberg College in Eugene, Oregon offers a unique BA in liberal arts grounded in the great books and a biblical worldview. Authors like Plato, Einstein, and St. Augustine pen the works that have shaped the world as we know it. And theirs are just a few of the deep voices Gutenberg students hear as they join a conversation that has continued for thousands of years. When you understand the past, you can thrive in the present and navigate the future. You can know how to care for others, serve with confidence in your vocation, and stay true to what matters most. To find out more about how a Gutenberg education can help you cultivate wisdom that will serve you for a lifetime, visit www.gutenberg.edu. Again, that's www.gutenberg.edu slash preview. And now back to the episode. So are you referring still to the, uh, to the references to the birds and, and treating or referring to, oh, you're talking about the friendship between Horace and Frank, how it develops? Yeah, well, we, she was just saying you may have a superior insight, I believe was the way she aptly put it, um, that because you've read the whole book, <laughs> we were talking about the idea of how the upper hand in the relationship seems to change because early on when we're reading the memoirs of Horace, it's clear that Prescott has the upper hand in the relationship, but now, but here in chapter four, at the end of their lives, it's clear that Horace has some sort of an influence over Prescott's, you know, some, an ability to convince him, for example, to retire, or at least reveal to him something that convinced that, that does convince him to retire. I was saying, do you have anything you can add to that? Anything you want to preview that wouldn't give things away? <laughs> Yeah, no, well, if even if we just limit it to chapter five, I think that there's some clues in there that Frank is not. I've look at I've already in 40 minutes, I've already gone to calling him by his first name. He's no longer Dr. Prescott, so he's just yeah. Frank. Um, <laughs> so in uh, um, but in chapter five, he I like he, I mean, so all through the first five chapters of the book, the image that we get of him is. As you as you mentioned earlier on, Sarah Jane, that he's this you know um, larger than life figure swooping around the campus with his with his cape and his cane, and 
and uh, you know everybody just gets out of his way. And and he apparently had that had that reputation even as a even as a child or as a teenager. But then but then there's still there's still clues in chapter five that that back then he was susceptible to somebody like Horace, right? Because mm-hmm. when when Horace makes the decision, when Horace takes the upper hand and says, I'm done, this relationship's over, it's more painful for me to be friends with him, to be around him, than it is like he does like a return on investment analysis, right? Mm-hmm. And says it's it's worse for me to be around him than it is to be away from him. Um and it's Frank who comes back and says, no, basically, no, we're, we're going to be friends. Come on, let's do this, you know, and, and kind of goes back. I mean, he does it in a Frank way, right? Like there's not like Horace points out and that was the apology. They go and sit in the <laughs> um, chapel, don't they? He doesn't say, he doesn't say, I'm sorry, but yes, that's right. They, they go and sit in the chapel and then he's, and then it says, and, and that was the apology right there. He's saying, let's go. And they go into the chapel. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I can find that passage other than it's in chapter five, but I can't remember um, page 75, but there seems to be an admission that Frank, there seems to be an admission that Frank needs him or at least wants him a lot, you know, to be around. Right. And so that, that Frank is vulnerable in some sense, but it's like, it's a different kind of vulnerability than definitely than what Brian has. There's a really interesting comment on their friendship. Um, towards the end of chapter five from Horace where Horace talks metaphorically about their friendship as that between a husband and a wife and then it's interesting that Horace turns up after Mm. the death of Harriet Mm. and he goes out of his way to make it not be sexual you know like to claim yeah he says what a reader of the last sentence would jump over a Freudian moon. <laughs> I belong to a simpler and less polluted generation, but in a Bostonian accent, obviously. Oh uh, yeah, of course, yeah. That's right. Oh man, hey, top of page seventy-five, your bird thing. So that's why we're going to Oxford. And then Frank winked. Let's put <laughs> killing two birds with one stone. <laughs> There's no way that Auchincloss, as a good writer, yeah. writes Frank winked. And then says, let's put it that I'm killing two birds with one stone after referencing hawks and vultures so often. There's no way that's not on purpose. I think it's be a little joke. We need to keep an eagle eye out for these bird references. There's some kind of aviary metaphor oh. going on here. There's that English English wit oh, right there. Sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, David, you're already feathering your nest now. But <laughs> I, th- I feel like if we just gave you 10 minutes, you could probably do some good stand-up comedy on a bird routine or something. I'm completely not funny at all. <laughs> is it? <laughs> I'm very serious. Is it, is it Brian's name uh, a kind of tree or or connected to trees, right? Aspen wall? The Aspen, isn't he? So is, is Brian a place for birds to nest? Oh, that's brilliant. Huh. Aspenwall is a borough in on the Allegheny River in Pennsylvania. I'm just doing a quick Google search. <laughs> I'm just wondering if there's anything. Like, I mean, an asp is definitely a a tree, right? So, or no, an asp is a, a snake. Is a it's a snake. snake right? <laughs> um, yeah. Well, that's interesting too. <laughs> asp in wall. <laughs> oh yeah, that is interesting. Oh, a snake in the wall. 
I don't know why. I there, lots of, um, there are lots of references to architecture in the first chapter, weren't there? Um, about the kind of austerity of the campus of Justin Martyr. And then as Brian starts to enjoy himself and like the place more, it seems he says something like even the bricks had softened. Hmm. Um, and I've I've been trying to picture what the school would look like. And there was a reference to an architect quite early on who, um, do you know the, um, is it Trinity Church in Boston, which has a kind of classical look to it by H.H. Richardson. Have you seen that church? It's kind of opposite Boston Public Library. I haven't, I haven't seen it, but ironically, I'm going to Boston uh-huh. in November, it looks like. Uh-huh. I'm going to have to go there. Um, that's referred to on page three. And so that's kind of the picture I have of the campus in my head, that it's, it is quite imposing and Romanesque. He says that it's has a certain leaning to heaviness suggestive of some medieval monastery in Southern France. Yeah. God, as usual, this, has done a better job than man. Yeah. And that this looks a bit like um, Prescott himself, that he's also mm-hmm. this kind of stocky. Um, it's got rotundas and long colonnades. Handsome character. So, can so would you, how is that? I mean, how is that different than the schools in in England? I mean, like, I don't even know if that's something that you can. I mean, for people, because not everybody's obviously been there. We could we could all just Google it, I suppose. When was Trinity Baptist Church, Trinity Church in Boston, built? Because <laughs> um, somewhere like Westminster. In London, that school was built in the 12th century, I think, in the 11th hundreds. So um, that has some very, very old sections. Um, And from my experience of seeing American schools, they're very beautiful and classically proportioned, but they are neoclassical. Um, Eton has, so the church was built in 1440, so that's uh, Gothic, and then the quad, the main schoolyard, looks a lot like Hampton Court Palace. So that's kind of Renaissance architecture, red brick. Um, it's very beautiful. Trinity Church in Boston was 1733. Yeah, so... Yeah, it does, it does have a, a kind of an imposing thing about it, doesn't it? Matt just texted me the Aspenwall name meaning. Matt, do you want to... You want to say something about that? Well, I cheated and I did a little bit of Googling. And so I found two things that may be interest, of interest. According to Google, Aspenwall comes from Aspen, meaning growing with Aspen trees. And from, this is from the Old English. And then wall, meaning stream. So it's a stream growing with Aspen trees. Oh. Apparently what Brian's name means. But then Ives, Mr. Ives, Ives means an archer's bow, huh. which is, of course, what you would shoot birds out of the sky well, with, right? The archer's bow. <laughs> He's referred to as well as a martinet, which um, has got nothing to do with Martin, the birds, but you know, we can force <laughs> it if we want to. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I didn't even notice the bird thing, so now this is like fascinating to me. I'm all caught up in it. Because I didn't even notice that he describes everybody with a relationship with a relation to a bird. Of some sort. I, I thought so he, he does that. It's either a bird or it's a bird plus what books they read. The only one who doesn't really get a bird is uh, the awful history teacher who's described as intellectually flabby. Um, 
Ruggle. Is he called Ruggle? <laughs> yeah. So that's it. So then, uh, so then maybe there is a. Well, it's just interesting that he would use a sort of a natural. You know, he says that line on page three that, as usual, God did better than. God, 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 as usual, has done a better job than man. So it's interesting, mm. and he's talking there about the difference, like the grounds themselves, uh, the, the glory of the elm trees, mm. uh, and the, and there everything's lightened by the profusion of verdurous, verdure. I can never pronounce this name, verdurous. I'm just going with that lawns and hedges, and by the glory of elm trees. And so it's interesting then that he's perhaps equating the intellectual life and the spiritual life with something in the natural world mm. in the face of the sort of Im- imposition that is the grounds um, of a place like this, which he then compares to, as, as you mentioned, Sarah Jane to, to Prescott. Yes. And isn't there something about, oh, I, I hope I'm not skipping forward too much now. Oh, don't worry about it. Um, that when Frank is a young man at Oxford, one thing he likes to do is cycle around looking at castles and there's, it says there's something of the fortress. There, there are aspects of the fortress everywhere in Justin Martyr. And so perhaps it's something to do with Prescott's love of the medieval and of chivalry that has been um, designed into the school itself. Doesn't, doesn't um, Horace call it Frankenstein, though? Is he, what is he referring to? He calls Prescott Frankenstein, yeah. Yeah, that's on 76. Yeah, on 76, he says, like Frankenstein, he had been locked away in a mental laboratory creating his monster. Oh, he's talking about probably the whole, everything about the school, right? Like the, the school being the monster. And all the way it was going to be run. Yeah. That's, that's how, I, how I took it. Yeah. So that, it, that would be interesting that, that Brian sees Justin Martyr the way he does. Mm. But then Horace sees it as a kind of monster that's been created. Well, interestingly, he says that he's afraid that it's going to swallow him. That's right. And isn't there something as well? I can't remember the quotation exactly, but um, Prescott doesn't care about beauty is what Horace thinks and what Brian thinks. And that he cares more about strength. Hmm. And that's, that's definitely true about Frankenstein's creature. Is that he's he's mm. like a fortress, but he isn't particularly beautiful. I mean, is his name being Frank Prescott a little bit on the nose there? <laughs> mm-hmm. and, then, and then his best friend or one of his oldest friends are calling him Frankenstein. That's kind of. Mm. But you know, it's interesting because he says that he said the top of seventy-seven at the end of chapter five. This is Horace. I used to visualize Frank's God with a little shudder as a despondent general sitting chin in hand on a camp stool by a tent, like one of those lithographs of Napoleon in Russia, surveying the field of that day's defeat and waiting for a miracle in the morning. That's such a complex theological bit of, um, you know, confusion going on there in, mm. uh, in, in, in Horace that we could probably spend 30 minutes talking about just by itself. But it's interesting that he's, he says that right after saying that he thinks the school is going to going to swallow him and having spoken, having discussed how Frank was, it absolutely had to be, you know, a, a school with spiritual intentions. And mm-hmm. it seems that that's, you know, he talks a lot about his own 
the differences between his family and Prescott's family in terms of how they viewed the church. And for, mm. for Horace's family, for the Havistock clan, it was about appearances, right? Um, and, and, the, and Prescott, despite maybe his um, lack of attention to beauty, for him, it's something much more than that. And that might be where um, uh, Brian and his, his own questions about whether he should be a minister maybe that's why he finds Prescott so appealing in some way and why he doesn't feel like he's being swallowed up by the school in the way that Horace does. Because for Horace, it's the, the monster is the the monster is so tied to Frank's God to use his quote, whereas Mm -hmm. that's appealing to Brian. It's not appealing to Horace. Yeah. And in the same way that Frankenstein and the creature throughout the story, Shelley's story become almost inextricable. And become to they come to reflect each other more and more. I thought that that metaphor you read. Sorry, it's a simile, isn't it? Is there a sense as well that Horace is saying that Prescott is a bit like Napoleon, and Prescott's God is a bit like Prescott? Mm. Yeah. Say that. Say that one more time. I want to think about that. Well, we're told that that Prescott is. He's five foot six, isn't he? Like Napoleon, he's quite short. He's handsome, stocky. He's um, he's a bit of a military strategist in the way that he does things. And he certainly speaks a lot about how the war should be conducted. And I wonder if Horace is sort of saying that Prescott, Prescott's God is a bit like Prescott, that maybe they're similar, that there's a kind of strange oh, yeah, yeah. idolatry going on. Mm. And it's kind of interesting that he says specifically Napoleon and Russia. <laughs> mm. The date serving the defeat, waiting for a miracle. So is that meant to suggest that the way Horace looks at it is Frank's looking at desolation and hoping f- that a miracle is going to change things? Is that supposed to be he's the way he's looking at his school? Or is this meant to be something representing something earlier? Well, he says he used to visualize Frank that way. Hmm. Hmm. I think it's some, maybe something as well about his tenacity. That even in the face of all kinds of opposition, he's he's not going to give up. Although this is about Frank's God, but I think it is also about Frank himself. They, the two seem to be inseparable. Yeah. But he says Frank's father, his own faith, and his projected school were all inextricably intertwined. Mm. We don't I don't know much about Frank's father yet. Maybe that's something we learn later in the in the book. I was just wondering did it did Napoleon's father die when he was young, or is there some, you know, other other comparisons that can be drawn between Napoleon and Frank. We know that that Frank's father died during the Civil War in Virginia. Hmm. I bet there's a painting. There's probably a particular painting that Alkin Kloss is referencing, maybe. Hmm. Oh, right. Yeah, I'm not seeing there, but that that horse is imagining. Yeah, maybe there's a work of art behind it. Didn't you find this... um, I can see why writers love this book. It's it's a sort of tapestry of intertextual references to other works of poetry and literature. Um, 
and architects and artists and sort of artisans. And yeah. I was often having to look up all these different little um, kind of names being dropped all over the place. <laughs> yeah, we should talk about that before we go. Um, and I guess we're coming up on our time here. Um, we, we you mentioned in particular, uh, Sarah Jane, off offline. You mentioned to me the all the Henry James references in those first couple of chapters, particularly in the conversations between Harriet Prescott and and Brian and. Prescott himself, Frank Prescott, makes fun of them for <laughs> for loving Henry James, or at least certain the the more minor Henry James books, I suppose. Um, you mentioned that you read some Henry James in college. Do you do you feel then that that not knowing who some of these people are or being able to draw the connections between um, between the books, the intertextual connections and things like that is makes the experience of reading the book lesser, like you're lacking something, like you you need to know those things to get the book or makes the experience less enjoyable, I guess is another way of asking it. I think Alkin Kloss is quite demanding of his reader. And if if the reader knows those references, there's a kind of vision here that perhaps betrays things about the story. I mean, there, there are lots of... so. I mean, Harriet Prescott, what do you think of her? She's always referencing Parisians. And then her husband thinks that she believes she is actually a character in Henry James's novel, The Ambassadors, which I haven't read. But from what I read about the story, the character Stretham is sent as an ambassador to Paris to bring someone home and sort of falls in love with Paris. And then we learn that she lived in Paris. And... Um, one of the things her husband seems to criticise her for is her inability to distinguish between art and life and that she wants to make her life into art itself. Um, whereas I think there's a perhaps something to do with the more kind of Lutheran strain of, of Prescott that he's, he's like, no, art and life are separate. You can't mm. mix those things up. Well, I was thinking a lot about how the, one of the reasons that Havistock has to leave is, is because of the war encroaching on Paris, right? And he leaves just in time, or France anyway. And and meanwhile, Harriet had fallen in love with it. So as Paris is falling, you know, is that's at the same time as the war is happening, encroaching on... I mean, that's at the same time that Harriet is dying, right? Yeah, right. And, and then... Yeah. And, and then um, Havistock keeps referencing... But Proust and uh, he even mentions, oh, he mentions Fitzgerald, right? Because he says there's only a couple of writers that are any good and um, doesn't, doesn't uh, um, Brian say what, even not, not Hemingway or Fitzgerald or something? Yeah, they all get written off as corrupted yeah. by modernity. But yeah. then he mentions how at one point he had made friends with Fitzgerald and those guys are so, they are, they are Harriet, right? They, they, they left mm. America they, in the twenties or the teens in the twenties, they go to Paris and there's this whole generation of writers of American writers in particular mm. who, who lived in Paris, who were a huge part of the culture there. You can go mm. to the places in Paris where these people hung out, right? It's like a whole literary tour of Paris and France, I guess even Spain to some degree, right, Matt? Um, but the way they went to Europe and they, they, mm -hmm. they built American culture on while in, and I, I believe on the, structures of europe at the time right mm. as europe is about to to collapse into this chaos right and uh well i guess i guess it's between the wars right that 
Fitzgerald would have and Hemingway would have been there because they were all, they were in the army during World mm-hmm. War One. Yeah, what's the Three name boys. of the patron, the woman whose house they used to meet in? Stein. Gertrude Stein. That's it. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's really interesting. Prescott is this kind of Roman. He's like an antique Roman who who kind of draws straight lines, and he says that was art, but corrupt art. Whereas mm. we find out that Prescott is someone who kind of maybe likes the decadence of Swinburne, even though he won't allow himself to indulge in it. Yeah, well, that was Swinburne's own problem, right? <laughs> um, and the, the isn't, last- isn't there something too with um, with Prescott is like, like those are all people who who kind of abandoned America mm-hmm. and then went over to Europe and then participated in a culture that could eventually lead to, you know, World War II. Um, and he was, he was one of those people that stayed, stayed and, and was loyal to America, just like his father, right? Um, like his father fought in the, I mean, he went to the South, but he fought in the war for what was right about America. Um, and that, and Prescott is the, his, Frank's the same way, right? He, he stayed in America and he built this school to make good American leaders um, and then all of these authors, like then, then he, you know, he meets and marries his wife and then she becomes somebody who had been, who had left and gone to Paris and fell in love with it, mm. comes back to America and her continuing to read and participate in those authors is kind of saying you didn't win, mm. but even though I'm here with you, I still love Paris. I, you know, I'm still with those guys. Right. Uh, yeah. I, I still believe in what they believed in. And her last word is Crébillon. She's making reference to this sort of salacious French writer. Hmm. And that, that the last, that's the last thing she says. And her husband says something like, oh, that's just like Harriet to say something so rebellious and decadent. Hmm. That's right. So, but, but he loves that about her, yeah. doesn't he, in that scene? Yeah, yeah. Because he kind of he loves that about her in that scene, so that's that's good, you know. It's I like what she said about referencing his father because it, his father literally died to preserve the country. Like mm-hmm. yeah, that seems like what Prescott has been trying to do for so long. He's trying to create people who will preserve the culture that his father died for, and I guess that's what Havistock is saying when he's saying that they're so connected together. The school and his father are intertwined, and maybe the school is his attempt to to make his father's death mean something. Or make it, or make it matter, in the long run, um, that 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 what his father died for, it's preserving the thing that his father died for for as long as he possibly can. And maybe now he's saying, well, that it doesn't die on his watch, kind of. Thing. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, I, you know, the, there's a lot of interesting literature that came out of the the Northeast in uh, following the Civil War. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, or or during that era, um, it, and and I think a lot of it is about you know what we just went through this we just went through this 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 chaos right the the civil war and what but what does it mean like what are, what are we passing on now that we've won you know we we fought to preserve something or to end something in the case of slavery, um, to preserve, uh, to preserve and then create a new, a new way of life. Um, but, but what does that actually look like? We've, we've, we've won the war, but now comes another way of work, right? It's reconstruction happened in the South, but Mm -hmm. it was also happening in the North. It was just called something different. And it was about 
it was like a definition of terms. And there was a lot of writing, a lot of literature um, that was trying to figure out what that meant. Um, and, and I think that in a lot of ways, his creation of this school, um, like what was going on with, you know, these big titans of industry like Ford and Rockefeller and these Vanderbilt and these guys, they're doing something very similar. They're responding to that same question, but in a different way than what Prescott is doing by creating a school. Um, and, and it feels like maybe at the end of his life here, all these, the effects of all these things are coming in touch with one another at the same time that Europe is being thrown into another bit of chaos as, as the Germans are taking Belgium or Brussels. Yeah. Can you tell me something as well about the reference to FDR and the new deal? Is there a kind of economic reconstruction going on as well in America? Yeah. Uh, well, Matt, do you want to, I mean, the, the new deal would have been, what year was the new, did the, did FDR implement, implement that Matt? Do you know, do you know off the top of your head? It was in the thirties. Yeah. In the thirties, it was following the great depression. So it was an attempt to lift America out of, out of the depression by sparking the economy, by increasing government spending and, public works mm. to try to get people jobs, give people paychecks, give people opportunities to, you know, survive and, and to do so in a way that improved the, the country. So the government, so the country goes into debt that way rather, or ra- not rather than, but a lot also, and also through by, by greater provisions of welfare than made mm. that than had previously been available. So yeah, next between 33 and 36. So there's something going on, I think between art, the art of decadence uh, and the literature of decadence. And then this, as you've said, this kind of reconstruction of society. And there's a kind of tension here. So page 13, Mrs. Prescott really dismisses the history teacher Ruggle because he, Ruggles, sorry, because he likes labor novels. And he says, there's a great deal of solid fiction being written today by men who understand that the fundamental structure of our society changed with the New Deal. And she really dismisses him and his taste in writing. But then we find later that Prescott, in a way, is kind of on a similar side and says, you know, this, um, this Paris that you love, that, that Henry James has constructed, it's not the Paris that we see in Zola's novels, where, you know, they're set in the kind of working class... Mm. Um, Bonlieu, the um, the suburbs where everybody's poor. So he's he's kind of there's a sense that there's a tension between the real struggle and the ugliness of struggle, and then the idealized beauty. Mm. Um, I wonder if that's something that's happening in the novel. Slightly a side note, but related. I was reading something about um, the poet, the English poet John. Is it John Clare? C L A R E. Oh yeah. And comparing him. Uh, I think Bloom, Harold Bloom was writing about how um, he deserves to be much more known, but he kind of gets buried by uh, Tennyson and, uh, and Wordsworth and Coleridge and Keats and Shelley and, you know, the other romantics who are quite popular, but that Claire was sort of the working class poet. That's right. He was dismissed because he was considered the kind of lad from Northamptonshire. Yeah. He's the son of, he was the son of farmers and a big, one of his big concerns was the, the dissolution of that way of life in the industrial revolution and so forth and how there's this tension between him um, and, and people like Wordsworth or 
Shelley who were kind of in the Lake Lake District and <laughs> maybe not. I don't know if Shelley was in the Lake District, but he's writing about how um, that sort of tension comes up and they kind of represent two different poles. And one of them becomes like the, you know, sort of quintessential poet, English poet of the year. And the other one kind of gets forgotten by all but a few people, although perhaps he's being remembered more now. But then Wordsworth, but then Claire ends up dying in an, an asylum. And he's talking about how mm-hmm. there's a sort of um, uh, terrible poetry in that, in, in what happens to them in their lives. You know, the one gets forgotten and locked away and one becomes the sort of quintessential poet of the year, as I said. But the one who gets locked away is the one who's fighting for the common, you know, writing for the common person. You know, he's sort of, you know, I'm not going to say that he's political in his writing, but he's certainly there's that element of to it. And he's trying to preserve a way of life in the face of the oncoming or the onslaught of industry. Yeah. I think he was also trying to strip away a lot of the conventions of the pastoral and try to say, look, mm-hmm. poetry doesn't have to, you don't have to know Virgil to be able to write poetry about the countryside. I can, I can write it in a kind of new and raw way in the language mm-hmm. of common men as, as the romantics were. So he's trying to give voice to people who were not rich enough to get the education that you'd need to understand Coleridge. Yes, I'm trying to give a voice to the countryside that was, um, I suppose, authentically English or as as a working class man might see it. Mm. Well, that's ironic then. I mean, that's interesting because that's the opposite of Alcan class, right? Mm. Like, you have to be pretty educated to understand all of the jokes in the novel or all of the references right yeah like when she um when harriet jokes with brian that she thinks the egoist is a good novel as a way of mocking ruggles's um self-importance okay so i want to let's let's talk about this briefly before we go because i've been thinking a lot about whether or not maybe auchincloss is winking when he does this like maybe in the end it doesn't matter if you know who these characters, like who the details of the egoist or Henry James or H.H. Richardson or whoever, like maybe, it, maybe he puts that in there in a sort of ironic sense and let the, the novel is, you know, maybe it makes it more fun for, you know, people like us to, <laughs> to, uh, to argue about it. But do you, can, can you not, can you understand? I mean, can you get the sort of heart of the novel even without those things? And maybe that's, those things are sort of, fundamentally distracting in the way that they were for Harriet. Yeah. Doesn't it also show something about the, there's a a little bit of a persnickety geekiness to Brian as well, that he, Mm. as an English, is he an English graduate? I can't remember. Is it, it's his part of the narrative is much more laced through with references to Boudin and Emerson and everything. Mm. Um, And perhaps that's not how the rest of the novel will be. Well, and ha- yeah, I mean, Havistock has his own way of interpreting things as well, his own lens through which he sees the world. Yeah. What if it's, what if it's, uh, this, this is an interesting question because it could be, it could be just that we're seeing it this way because we're seeing Brian's yeah. take on it. And so Brian is trying to, I mean, Brian isn't, uh, it, I think you're right. I think Brian isn't, you know, a, a student of English. He's the professor of English or teach, he teaches English at the school anyway. Mm. Um, and so there's a sense in which these are all things that he likes and he loves. So they, of course they come out in his journal, mm-hmm. but also it may be his way of saying, look at me. I fit in with Justin Martyr, right? Like I'm, 
I know the kinds of things that students from Justin Martyr would know. Um, and so there's this kind of, yeah. at least intellectually, I can be the type of person that knows the sorts of things that mm. Frank Prescott would teach, have his students to learn. Um, but then it is, but then from at the authorial level, is there this thing where Alkenklaus is trying to show us what, like, like, that you need to be like the kind of education that Justin Martyr would demand of you. I'm going to demand of you as you're reading this book. Um, but then at the same time, perhaps as you're saying, David, maybe, maybe there's this subtle undermining of that message by saying, and yet actually you don't need to know these things in order to read and enjoy this book or to get the, to get the point, you know? So there's like, you feel like you're, you're less than, Justin Martyr-ish. Yeah. But then you don't, you don't feel end, you don't feel right? like you're smart enough to get it, right? But maybe that that's a distraction. Right. The interesting thing is that um Frank has always been called a Philistine. <laughs> so he cuts against it. <laughs> because he just wants mm-hmm. to be out on the football field, sort of cheering for the guy who can throw like a saint or whatever, <laughs> he said. Um mm-hmm. It's interesting, I don't know, because if this is a deliberate intention of Auchincloss to sort of try and say, look how erudite I am and I want my novel to be connected with all these great works of art, then it does seem a little desperate and overdone. Mm. So maybe it's it's more, as you say, about Brian trying to fit in, in into what he thinks is a very academic... He maybe, so maybe it is desperate and overdone. <laughs> yeah, maybe Brian, that's right. Brian is desperate, yeah. By Brian, yeah. <laughs> huh. Yeah, poor Brian with his heart murmur. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we should wrap this up. So, uh, Sarah-Jane, what, are you, what, are you, what is a question that you might have that you are looking forward to as we read chapters six through nine uh, for the next episode? I'd like to figure out more um, about Prescott's relationship to beauty and art. Mm. He says, I'm a great believer in safety valves, particularly where art is concerned. And I'm never sure when Prescott's being serious or when he's just sort of being iconoclastic for the sake of, <laughs> of, of sort of being truculent. Um, yeah. So, the yeah. mystery, yeah. Yeah, he's, that's one thing that's interesting to me. Mm. And I don't know, I had a sense that maybe Brian was going to get with one of Prescott's daughters, but actually that's probably not going to happen, is it? Well, who knows? We'll have to we'll have to find out. I mean, that would be uh, that sounds like it would be in a Henry James novel. We can pray. It's too much plot. I don't think this is going to be a novel about plot. <laughs> <laughs> um, Matt, you've read it before, but what is something that you are looking forward to, and um, you know, looking into these next three, well, four chapters, I guess. Um, I, I'm I'm interested in this idea of whether Prescott is. If, if Prescott really is somebody who believed that you had to be a military leader to be a man, mm. I mean, you know, that kind of reputation mm. and, and Brian doesn't fit that, but he's going to fix it. But then is he starting to change his view after, you know, seeing, seeing what Brian did with Harriet and is Prescott seeing that there's a way to be a man that's different than the way he's a man. And then, and then can help and then intends to help Brian with that. Or is it still is it still about no? This is what a man is, and that's what, what I'm going to help you to do, even even as he leaves the school. And, and I don't know, like, how are we going to see that 
can, can my question even be answered if we're now, if now everything we're learning about Prescott is from the past, right? Like we've heard, we've read the present with Brian, but now with Horace, we're all getting all the past, right? So can, what, what is, I don't know, that would be interesting. Hmm. That's just what I'm wondering about it. Hmm. Well, thanks to you both for taking the time. We had a nice long conversation. <laughs> um, next week, we will uh, discuss chapters six through nine. So, you know, everybody make sure you uh, read that. If you want to see the schedule, um, the full schedule, you can go to the uh, Close Reads Instagram page. That's at Close Reads Pause on Instagram. Or you can sign up for the newsletter. That's at closereads.substack.com. And when you go there, you'll be able to see all the archives like where we posted the, um, the schedule. Of course, it's also at Facebook. So if you are on Facebook and you want to join the conversation, you can go to the Close Reads podcast discussion group. Just search that in the, in the uh, search bar on Facebook and you can join there. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can do that as well at Close Reads Pods. Uh, I think that about covers all the different ways you can get in touch with us. Although you can also email at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com if you want to send a question. And of course, we will do our final episode on the Rector of Justice and we will answer listener questions. Don't forget also about the other podcasts on the network. We have The Place, The Thing. Right now, Heidi and Tim are discussing The Tempest. The episode for Act 1 is up and then Act 2 will go up very, very soon. And then we also, of course, have The Daily Poem. Um, I did share a John Clare uh, poem there on that later this week. So if you're, uh, if you're interested in hearing a John Clare poem, which we just, we just discussed him, then you can make sure you subscribe for that. I guess that covers it though. So Sarah J. Also, I heard that I heard that Sarah Jane was incredible on the place of thing for the two places. Yeah, there were some good reviews. So well done, Sarah Jane. And oh, thanks, Matt. Yeah, if you guys have, if those of you didn't ever listen to it, then get over there. I, I've been racked with guilt about one thing I said, which was I went off on this big tirade about a particular fortress in Venice and had and this idea that Othello had been to look at a statue of Bologna and then teaching the play to the boys in, in school. Subsequently, I realized at that point in the play, he's actually in Cyprus. <laughs> it's complete nonsense. So sorry. Oh, well, I mean, if someone hasn't said something nonsense in at least one episode, then, you know, what are we really doing here? Apologies for that. Um, that was Way to get out of the way early, though. Good job. <laughs> yeah. Are you going to Boston then, David, did you say? next? Yeah, that's the plan. Okay, so one thing we didn't mention that you, you must do when you're there. Okay is go to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, which is mentioned on page 29 of the novel. And I think that Isabella Stewart Gardner was maybe a friend of Harriet Prescott. Uh, and there's a painting there, Titian's Europa, and there's an amazing painting by um, John Singer Sargent of the, uh, the it's, it's like a painting of Duende. It's this white dancer with a black background. It's an amazing painting. But the whole, the whole museum is incredible. It's built like... Um, a kind of Venetian palazzo and it was built out in the swamps in Boston mm. under cover of darkness in secret. And it's full of all kinds of works of art from Giotto through to, um, oh, wow. through to singer sergeant. So if you have time, I recommend it. Oh, I think I'll have to make time. We're actually going to do, mm -hmm. um, Graham and I are going and Matt, if you want to come, you're welcome to, we're going to be doing a, um, literary tour, like doing a feature for our magazine on kind of the literary tour of Boston. So we're going to do like oh, a, wow. a photo essay of all the different spots with with some brief commentary about, you know, our sort of excursion doing that. So we're going to go to the library, the, you know, Boston Public Library and we're going to go to the different literary houses and go to as many spots as we can over the course of a couple of days. So we'll have to um, go there and then 
get some footage of this garden for well, whatever they'll let us do, I guess, for uh, for the Close Reads listeners. Wow, that would be incredible. It's, there's so much in Boston, in New England. Yeah, we're gonna get gonna do as much as we can. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks to you both for for joining me. This was a lot of fun, and I look forward to next week's conversation. Thanks for working with me on the time, the time, uh, the different time zones to both of you. Oh, pleasure. <laughs> yeah. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye.